I'm Charlie Schlenker, the news director at WGLT Public Radio. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Garlic Press Market Cafe, the Town of Normal, our local sponsors. Uh, this continues a two-year line of GLT reporting on the impact of the choices made by the governor and legislature. We've run two different series so far, titled Stretch Thin and later Stretched Thinner. Uh, thanks as well to uh, AARP of Illinois for making this entire 11-episode statewide uh, series of forums on the, uh, the state budget and the situation the state of Illinois is in, and as well, Illinois Issues and NPR Illinois, or WUIS in Springfield, the sort of mothership of the public radio system in uh, the state of Illinois. Thank you so much. Our panelists I'll introduce uh, in a moment when the show begins. And right now I'd like to uh, let uh, and invite uh, Randy Eccles of NPR Illinois to give uh, a couple of remarks, and then he'll pass it off to Bob Gallo of AARP Illinois. Great. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate it. And uh, what a beautiful venue. I haven't been here before, so uh, nice, nice to find great places like this. Should be excellent for tonight. Uh, I really want to thank WGLT, as with all the public radio stations that have participated in this listening tour. Uh, we really, a few years ago, not really a few years, about a year into not having a budget, realized we probably weren't going to have a budget for another year. And it became important to both hear how it was impacting people, but also to have panels of experts who can let, it, let folks know how it might be impacting you down the line. So tonight's important along those lines. NPR Illinois, as Charlie said, is the, uh, it's the, we're the hub of the state network. We provide state house news to all the stations, including WGLT. And then uh, Illinois Issues has been a public policy magazine for four, over 40 years here in Illinois. It's now a digital product, and every Thursday we, we run an Illinois Issues in-depth feature on the air. And the Illinois Issues Forums are part of that where we go in, in deep like this to try to find out what's going on with particular topics in the state. Uh, one of the things uh, as we were trying to figure out how the series would work is what if the budget passes? And one did, and what we found is there's still a lot to talk about. The this, this situation is not over. It's past due. Um, SB1 was a little time bomb in the budget. A lot of people didn't know everything that was in what passed. Now what we're hearing at this moment is that there may be an agreement coming together on SB1, some details being worked out. I'm sure we'll hear more. Um, and then what's going to happen as we get into the gubernatorial election for the next budget cycle? So all that being said, we really want to thank you for being here, and I'd like to introduce Bob Gallo, the Illinois executive for AARP. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Gary, as well. And thank you all for being here. Uh, we started this journey. This is the sixth of these forums we've done around the state. We started in Springfield. We've been to Champaign-Urbana. We've been to Peoria. We've been up to Chicago. We've been up to the College of DuPage in Glen Ellen. And now we're here in, in normal. Um, but things are not normal in Illinois. So um, we our, our part of this campaign, we've called Enough is Enough because I mean, what else could you say at this point? You know, the fact that a budget did pass is a step forward, but the fact that it took two years without a budget is just inexcusable. I just want to point out that uh, ARP here in Illinois has 1.7 million members, and we have offices in every state in the United States, including the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and Washington, D.C., and Illinois was the, is the only state in the United States that could not pass a budget. And the implications of that, you're going to hear from our panelists this evening, are 
broad and deep in the pain that it's caused individuals and citizens of this state. So when we hear that Meals on Wheels aren't being delivered and nonprofit organizations are shutting their doors and laying people off and students who want to go to college in Illinois are thinking and deciding to go to college somewhere else because they don't think that there's a future here for them, that's a concern. And the most important thing I have to tell you is that in order for this to continue to move forward, what we pressed, we pressed against the rank and file. You need to contact your legislators and tell them to be your leader in this issue. So thank you, thank you for being here, and thanks for your attention. Our purpose here tonight is to recount at least part of the damage done to the various institutions in our community by the two-year budget standoff, to look at the current situation, which is not all right. Uh, we also want to delve into perhaps some little-considered spin-off effects of the standoff, the pressure on local institutions in the community going forward, and to consider potential policies taking those facts into account. We're also here to hear from you, your stories of the last two years of fruitless striving in Springfield and the inability to come to decisions. Our panelists, we thank them today, including Mark Peterson, the city manager for the town of Normal, Laura Furlong, the CEO of Mark First, uh, which delivers services to those with disabilities. Laura is also part of Illinois Partners for Human Services, a statewide group of providers. Cheryl Gaines, former town council member and head of the Institute for Collaborative Solutions, welcome and Vicki Hightower, the Senior Director of Adult Services for the YWCA of McLean County. And last but not least, Mark Jontry, the Regional Superintendent of Schools for McLean, Livingston, DeWitt, and Logan Counties. Welcome all. Let's start with a look back from the panelists. Just a brief overview. What hath the state wrought in the last two years upon your institution? We'll begin with Mark Peterson of the Town of Normal. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, as I was uh, thinking about this forum uh, this evening and trying to come up with something to say that hasn't already been said, uh, it is difficult. But one of the things I, I, I reflected upon is what, how this, the state's fiscal situation has affected the psyche of Illinoisans. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've had occasion over the past several months to travel out of state. And when asked, where are you from, I tend to hesitate and, frankly, a little embarrassed to acknowledge I'm from Illinois and what a shame that is. We have a wonderful state with a tremendously rich history, and uh, we shouldn't have to be embarrassed to say we're from Illinois, but alas, I think we are. Uh, and I think that that is something that we haven't really talked much about, but it's a real uh, outcome of the state's fiscal uh, situation. Um, more tangibly, um, there are certainly agencies, both uh, uh, quasi-governmental and governmental agencies in Illinois that have been affected to a much greater degree by the state's fiscal situation than have municipalities. Certainly we have. We have lost funding in a variety of areas. We have, uh, we just recently, with the most recent budget, we discovered a lot of little goodies in that budget that will adversely affect municipalities, including a new fee uh, that we are now must pay to the state uh, for the privilege of, of them collecting sales tax on our behalf. Um, but I think more profoundly on local governments, it has been the impact on economic development 
And that is a real impact that we deal with every day. There are, we, we work very hard here in Normal, Bloomington, and McLean County to attract new businesses, to grow our local economy, to create job opportunities. And there are hundreds, maybe thousands, probably thousands of businesses across the country that are looking to expand, that are looking to relocate or looking to uh, invest in new communities. And frankly, they have crossed Illinois off the list. They won't even consider a location in Illinois. So that puts us at an extreme disadvantage over uh, communities in other, other states. And that is, uh, that is a, an outcome that likely uh, will not go away soon. So it's something we have to deal with, and we, we do our best to deal with that. Uh, but it, is, uh, it has created a hardship for our entire our community and certainly for communities throughout the state of Illinois. Thanks, Mark. Cheryl Gaines, how is the Institute for Collaborative Solutions doing? Well, we feel like um, we're kind of trying to tread water to keep our heads above it. Um, it's been tough. Uh, we're a small agency anyway, and um, this money that we get from the state is to provide uh, services for domestic violence um, we, we serve perpetrators in hopes that we can help keep victims safe because of, by teaching new skills. And we have not had any money from them for over a year. And with that... Are you going to make it? We're still waiting because we haven't received any money yet this year. And if we don't get some pretty soon, I'm not sure we can continue. Because one of the outcomes has been that one of our other programs that was more insurance driven was helping to supplement that program. Well, that meant none of the staff were getting raises and they kind of saw the writing on the walls. So I had to, of course, lay off um, a half-time facilitator and um, put my other domestic violence person in a part-time position. And then I had um, one of my therapists who was really doing most of the insurance work to drive this um, to help support it. And she saw the writing on the wall and she got out. And so now I'm here and I'm trying to see as many clients as I can um, via insurance, but I'm also working with the domestic violence program. So. Um, we're trying to stay above water. I'm trying to stay above water. Um, it's hard, as we talk about the psyche, it's hard for any providers who are already um, subject to some vicarious trauma in the work they do, also having, having to add this kind of trauma and worry to it. Vicki Hightower, the Director of Senior uh, Adult Services, the Senior Director of Adult Services for the YWCA of McLean County. You have had noted market and well-publicized impacts, but share those with us uh, for the audience that hasn't heard about them. Sure. I, I think the big thing is most people don't even know. Um, we've been here over 100 years in this community, and most people have no idea what we even do at uh, YWCA McLean County. And uh, people still think of us as health and fitness, which we haven't done for probably seven or eight years. We are strictly a social service uh, just, uh, uh, justice community. Um, what we're trying to do here is we serve everything from our children that are six weeks old. We serve over 600 children a year, uh, all the way up into uh, the programs that I oversaw, which was our senior services. Our home care services department had over 250 seniors throughout McLean County that we were helping stay at home so they did not have to go into a nursing home. Um, with the state budget cuts, uh, my 
departments, particularly our medivan program, where we were providing non-emergency medical transportation to and from doctor's appointments for residents in McLean County. We had to end that program. Uh, the De Illinois Department of Transportation, uh, there was a federal grant that uh, funneled through there that was able to help support that program. They changed the criteria to make it only available to those wanting a new vehicle, but no longer operating. Uh, operating costs, so we had to shut that program down. We have not received any funds from that program for the past two years. Uh, our home care services, we've been doing that for over 40 years in this community, and it was one of the toughest decisions we've ever had to make, and we had to step away from that program. This, uh, just for that program itself, we were owed over $300,000. We were projected to lose, even if they had paid us, projected to lose over $200,000 for the year. And as a not-for-profit in this community, you can't function that way and not have it affect all of our programs. Uh, by stepping away, uh, we were one of the last of the three providers, two other providers that already dropped out. We were the only remaining local not-for-profit provider. And so now all that's left are two for-profit agencies that took over caring for the clients and neither one is a local um, provider. They One's out of Springfield and the other's out of uh, Champaign. So, our seniors have been struggling. They've been calling us nonstop because they're so confused on who's supposed to be taking care of them, even with the state and their managed care. Uh, got them so confused because they kept changing whether, who those managed care providers were, so nobody knew who they were supposed to contact for a case manager. Um, and the last I'll just say is our Stepping Stones program uh, for sexual assault uh, victims, and also they do a lot of educating in the schools in that. While they're still able to stay afloat, it's dependent on federal money now. The state did not come through with a contract, and so we lost over $75,000 there as well. So uh, in our home care, we had to lay off uh, 60 staff um, that have been doing this work for a long time. So uh, we have taken a lot of hits, and, and I'm very proud of our organization to all pitch in together to try to see how we can still serve our clients the best we can, as well as help McLean County and, and their seniors and our children. Laura Furlong, what's the situation with Mark First? Well, much like Mark, I have families that ask me all the time, how are you going to help people with disabilities? What can I do for my child who has a disability? And I frankly say, if you have the opportunity to go to another state, I would think about that for your child. And that's sad for me. I've been a resident here for 30 years. Um, but the services we provide in Illinois are 49th for people with disability out of 50 states. So, And that has been consistent. Um, that isn't something that just happened with the recent budget issues. Um, we may be 50th at, now, at, at this time as well. During this budget time, we actually were being paid at Mark First because of court consent decrees. So there were court mandates that said we had to be paid. Um, we are worried now, um, in an odd type of way, that the budget has now been approved because we no longer have protection for payment for people with disabilities. And so we right now are watching very closely what's going to happen with funding um, and our billing to the state. I think another issue um, that I talked to Charlie just a little bit about was that we are also seeing our children and families on Medicaid being turned down for services. So providers in our local community in the last 24 months have said, we won't serve you on Medicaid. We're going to serve private insurance 
um, clients first or families first. And so we have waiting lists in areas that we have never had waiting lists before, including pediatric therapies for young children, which is very detrimental. And all those issues, and I'm sitting next to Mark here, are going to be moved right into the schools if we don't address them early in a child's um, life. And Mark Jontry, there are lots of different kinds of school districts in the four county area that you support and to some degree oversee. Uh, what is their situation after the passage of this budget? Yeah, um, so the shoe is on the proverbial other foot uh, as it turns out for K-12 because for the last two years we're the one segment of this state that has been funded, um, albeit at a level that reflects $2,010. and. Um, so we've gotten by on the K-12 level, but as Laura pointed out, that has, we, we've still felt the effects of all the other sectors not getting funded because we have more and more kids that are coming to us with more and more issues, um, whether it be issues for the kid, issues in the family dynamic, um, and that stretches all the way, not only at the elementary level, but all the way through your high school grads who are leaving this state to go to higher ed out of state. And they're not, a lot of them have already said they're not coming back. So we have, we've created a little bit of a, a brain drain when it comes to uh, employable talent staying here. Relative to all the districts that I serve, I have had a range of districts that have a total of 43 days of cash on hand a year ago. And th those are the most recent numbers I have relative to their financial reports. but. Uh, to others that have had two years worth of operating cash and that, that's just a product of their local uh, financial dynamic. Uh, but that is 43 days cash on hand is as one of the superintendents said to me, that's a couple of workman comps claims away from being <laughs> in trouble uh, when it comes to, to being able to, uh, to make payroll and, and other things like that. So. Uh, it's been a challenge, and what has gone on because of the delayed payments and the reduced payments that we've even gotten in those budgets is that our districts are robbing Peter to pay Paul out of their various funds. So we've gotten very diminished, if any, uh, payments in transportation, special ed personnel reimbursement. So you're taking that general state aid money that you are getting to prop up those funds because we do have to bust the kids to get them to school. Uh, we've got to serve those special needs students. Uh, but we're taking money out of our other funds uh, to support what otherwise is other support those areas that are otherwise funded uh, through dedicated funds and so um, it's created uh, huge issues and but the overarching issue that is really presented itself is the mental health issues that are being presented in our schools at all grade levels because of the lack of services with our social service agencies the last two years. In just a moment, we're going to hear from Dick Reinheimer of uh, Bloomington. I'd like to invite him to come down to the microphone. But uh, first, uh, some people are saying the situation is actually significantly worse than it was two years ago with a budget that's still $2 billion out of balance, back bills that are more than doubled to nearly $13 billion, a remaining $130 billion unfunded pension obligation that hasn't been addressed. There's also uncertainty whether the political brinksmanship that led to this two-year deadlock will end now that we have just this one budget 
And of course, next year is, as someone already said, an election year. And it's a truism of Illinois state government that it's difficult to get anything done in an election year. Have we spent two years at this effort to restructure state government for nothing or less than nothing? Is it worse? Who wants that one? Mark Peterson. Uh, it's definitely worse. Um, and, and again, we've spent a lot of time recently talking about the budget. Um, and we fortunately, at least, there is a budget, uh, not a complete one, and certainly not a balanced one. What we have not talked about is the unfunded pension liability, which is a huge number. I think, Charlie, you indicated $130 billion. That's, of course, what's reported by the state. Other groups have analyzed it and think it's much higher than that. Uh, but just assuming it's $130 billion, that is a massive number. There is no way that you can raise taxes to cover that liability. Um, at this point, there is uh, legal obstacles to diminishing benefits, which I think, frankly, would be unfair to pensioners who have dutifully contributed year in and year out to the pension system. But that is the one area that, at this point, it, in Springfield, is not even being discussed. We've just set that 900-pound gorilla in the corner and, and I guess we're going to have to deal with it eventually. And my concern is it is growing so dramatically every year, we may not be able to address it. It may reach a point where it's simply not solvable. And uh, then what do we do? So I think even at $130 billion, uh, somebody told me that's, for every household in Illinois, that's $28,000 per household. So if we were going to cover that, every household would write a check for $28,000. That is a staggering number. That is a terrifying number, and we aren't even talking about it right now. Dick Reinheimer, let's bring you into the conversation. Okay, that was a kind of a good segue to my question. And, and to Mark's point, uh, two years ago, I think that number was $114 billion. <clears throat> so it's growing dramatically every year. And my, uh, I have a comment, and then I'll follow up with a question. The, the defined pension benefit Benefits are dying uh, in the private sector. <clears throat> However, lucrative public sector pensions continue with little effort to uh, stop the uh, unfunded obligation. It is unsustainable uh, to expect private sector employees to pay for rich public sector pensions. Property taxes continue to rise to fund policemen and firemen pensions. Um, from a municipal point of view, how would you like to see this issue resolved? And I don't, I don't, uh, well, let's I start, guess. Let's start with Mark Chantry on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, so a couple issues relative to this K-12 arena. We are probably going to be inheriting, when I say we, the school districts are going to be inheriting, to your point, uh, a cost shift uh, of the state's share of the pension uh, liability at this point that they've been paying as a part of the negotiations that are going on around Senate Bill 1, which is the essentially the school funding uh, discussion. Uh, having said that, um, that, that results in uh, additional property tax pressure uh, on the local districts to provide co uh, cover for that. Uh, I've, I've had more than one uh, pensioner who is a part of that system say to me I would be willing to have my pensions taxed in a, if I knew that that was going back to the system to help make it solvent. Um, they recently introduced a choice option uh, for new pension enrollees uh, to try to mitigate that going forward. 
but the challenge is still going to be there uh, for um, existing enrollees, and uh, I don't know what the great answer is. $28,000 per household probably isn't a great answer uh, to address that, and uh, we're going to have to look at other options. Another part of the legislation is also provided existing Tier 2 enrollees the option to opt out and en enroll into a more traditional 401k. Uh, type so they are trying to implement some choices to try to at least lower the um, obligation going out but uh, the sins of the past are still there and it's going to be a heavy lift and I don't think there's any one magic solution to it. Mark Peterson you also have a piece of this of course. Um, is, first off is lucrative the right framing for, for the definition of pensions? Well I guess that's a matter of opinion but I would say uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll take the perspective of a teacher, somebody who entered the system 30 years ago and, and essentially entered into a contract with the employer. And they were told, if you contribute a certain amount of your paycheck every year to this pension system, uh, when you retire in 20, 25, 30, or 35 years, you will get this amount of money. That was the deal. They didn't, that wasn't their, that wasn't the teacher's decision. That was what they were offered. And oh, by the way, it was mandatory. You had to participate. You had no choice. So those teachers dutifully made their payment every paycheck. Had the state held up their end of the bargain, there would not be a problem. This is not the fault of the pensioners. It's not the fault of the employee. They made their payment every single year. Whether you believe that the the benefits are lucrative or not, and I think, again, that's, that's a matter of opinion, um, that was the deal. And had the state fulfilled its obligation, that, that pension would be funded adequately. The state didn't. For year after year after year, they did not meet their obligation. They made a choice, a conscious choice, and we can point fingers at everybody, Republicans and Democrats, and it's not just the General Assembly and it's not just the governor. They were all culpable in, in, in not making those required payments year after year after year and now we are in a pickle, and, and it is going to be difficult. I will say that the state has already rolled back pension benefits for new employees, but it's certainly not reasonable to roll back benefits for people that are already retired or those that are nearing retirement. And who still, to this day, don't pay into Social Security as a result That's, of that. That is correct. They don't receive Social Security benefits either. Yeah. So what are you... The, what is in the menu of options to deal with it? We heard a couple for taxing retirement income from, from Mark. Do you have, uh, the other Mark, do you have uh, other options that are worth talking about in the public discourse? Well, I do, I do believe that, the, that there may be the need to sit down with groups representing existing employees and retired employees to see if there is some common ground. I have heard that also from not only from pensioners, but from employees who are, have, have worked under this system, that they probably would be willing to, to uh, relinquish some level of benefit in order to uh, have greater assurance that their pensions will be adequately funded by the time they begin to draw. Um, but I think that involves negotiation, and I certainly don't think the employees should bear the full brunt of that obligation. It will require some sacrifice on the part of all Illinois taxpayers. It will require some hard decisions by the Illinois General Assembly to, 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 to get these pensions funded. The good news is they don't have to, it doesn't have to happen overnight. 
can happen over a period of many years. And frankly, it doesn't have to be 100%. If we get to an 80% funding level, that's pretty good, and that's acceptable. So I think you, you, you bite off what you can, but it is going to – it's. It, we need to start now. The longer we wait, the bigger the problem is going to be. So is the amount that the state of Illinois is supposed to be paying into the pension system right now to make up for years of not doing so a realistic number? It's not a realistic number. It's, it's currently, I think, 25% of the entire state budget, I believe, goes to pensions. It's not enough. It's not enough to make up for all those years where pensions were underfunded. And the other problem, of course, we have now today that's affecting all pension funds across the country is the investment income is much lower than what we had anticipated. And so that's another uh, a contributing factor. Let me call up David Gaffron of Bloomington to the microphone. He'll be uh, in just a moment. But uh, Mark Chantry, you had a thought. Just uh, another uh mechanism in that is, you know, our our, payment, our pension payment schedule now is purely, not purely, but in part a, a product of legislation in terms of the payment ramp, which was just part of the legislation that was passed, you know, a couple of decades ago. We certainly can look at reamortization of that and, and look at flattening that out. That's partly why we're in the situation we're in, is it's become a pretty steep uh, allocation at this point. And if you... Uh, reallocate that and, and level it out a little bit, you can free up more dollars to go to our other needs in the state. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. We're talking about the state budget challenges ahead here at the Normal Theater. Uh, we tend to focus on the budget standoff as if it is the only operating factor, but I've heard tell there was a recession about a decade ago that is still in play. How has that shaped our now? What other factors should we consider in assessing where we are? Uh, Laura Furlong, why don't you take that one first? Well, we are actually seeing a lot of chaos at the state level. Um, there's been a lot of retirements there, probably because of the pension issues, and there are a lot of new faces. And so we have a lot, a very difficult time getting people into services and getting issues resolved for families and children. Um, the waiting list for people, adults with disabilities, um, has grown to about 22,000 families who need services and are eligible for services that can't do that. So again, and I think there's lots of systemic issues that we see in human services, um, and a lot of that has to do with the change and those retirements. Um, in some cases, there's been a freeze on hiring in certain divisions in certain areas, and so um, there's you call a phone number and there's absolutely no one answering. You can't leave a voicemail and they don't say call this instead. There is absolutely no resources for providers and certainly for families and people who have needs. And Vicki Hightower, what's your thought on, on this question about what other factors are present in assessing where we are? It's not just the last two years. Yeah, I, I would agree with Laura, especially about calling uh, down to the state departments. There is, uh, you know, you're, you're expecting a little bit of a runaround whenever you call a state agency, you know, so you know you're going to go about four or five different people, but when that is that dead air and there is nobody, and then you try to send emails and they just bounce back, and you're trying to figure out who it is that you should talk to about things. Um, I, I would also say that the other factor for us, especially when we're dealing with seniors, is that it's continuously growing the need to serve seniors, but we're regressing backwards in what uh, they're trying to do for the seniors. And so the push is almost to go privatize. It's going pushing toward nursing homes, but if you look at nursing homes, very few are taking 
uh, Medicaid individuals. So it's like, where are they supposed to go? This has been ongoing, um, but now we're really seeing it hit because of the number of uh, boomers. I myself am a boomer, so I am, I'm very much aware of the numbers that are coming in the last 10 years. Uh, just in Illinois, in the community care program serving seniors, it's grown over 100%, and they're predicting another 57% in the next five to seven years. They're coming up with ideas right now that um, actually would regress us backwards, but trying to find ways to serve seniors, um, but that are not realistic. So I think it's just been ongoing, but definitely the fact that they're not replacing people in the state agencies is a huge factor for us. David Gaffron, what's your question? Um, I have two things that are, to me, related. Uh, number one, uh, I can't find out from either the Tribune or our local paper who holds the debt of the state of Illinois. I'd love to find out who's got that paper because that costs us more too. And if they're sticking us 8% interest when they really could charge us four, just think what that means. So to me, that's a question that the legislature leader, we should find out who's got our paper and what are they charging us? Because every time they say, well, if we borrow more, it'll just cost Illinois more. Now, the other, the major question is this, has there been or will there be an independent committee of economists and financial leaders who will submit a plan of how to bail us out of this mess, will it be organized, and when? And the reason I raise that is I believe it was the Panagraph several or many months ago. On the editorial page, an economist, I don't remember name or what, in as many articles as I save, I didn't save that one, but this individual laid out a plan, you know, basically saying, hey, Illinois, you know, don't shoot yourself. You can work your way out of this, and here's a way you can do it. And he talked about what kind of interest rates would be involved in borrowing money and how you pay this back. I like yeah. Mark's comment. This doesn't have to happen tomorrow. It may take 45, 50 years, but over time, it'll all fall into place. That's how we have historically financed government since the beginning of the country, as far as I know. So that's D my major question. David Gaffron, thank you very much for your question. Mark Chantry, let, let's take that second question first. Is there an impartial, widely accepted, reliable, nonpartisan, nonpolitical, I know, I know disinterested where I, I know where group. you're going, Trent. So I, I, I would refer to a group out of Chicago, uh, Center for Budget and Tax Accountability, run, run by Ralph Martiri, that some of our viewers, listeners may be aware of, others. And it, it is, uh, by all accounts, uh, bipartisan, unaffiliated, and he's run uh, numbers that kind of lay out a plan uh, for how we get back to fiscal stability in the state of Illinois. I know that he has taken, the center, Ralph and others have taken meetings with leaders to explain uh, the path forward. Others have uh, engaged in that as well. Um, I'm dubious to answer the gentleman's question of whether or not that power, for lack of a better term, will be turned over independently uh, given political machinations that, that go on. Well, that does raise the question. We, we do have this $36 billion budget. We have a $5 billion tax increase. And in spite of the hike, Illinois remains a relatively low income tax rate 
state among the states and a high property tax state. How do those facts affect the political calculus needed to address these existing and future problems? Uh, Cheryl, you've been a politician a long time. What's your take on that? Well, it's really hard, especially for the schools, when they're needing money and um, they have to have it come through taxes that come through the community. And so it, if you're a small community, the taxes are going to go higher. My hometown where I come from, it's a small county and a small school district. Fortunately, there's some farmland that pays some things and, and some cell towers but that help, but or windmills, I should say, but the fact remains, there is no rhyme to reason how this happens. And so if there were something wider across the board where it, where it went to the income tax, perhaps maybe that could be um, more widely distributed and figured out, but I'm sorry, I just don't have a lot of confidence right now that anything in Springfield can try to be uncomplicated and figure it out. Jim Alstrom, you're next up from the audience, so please approach the microphone. Uh, I'm going to tackle uh, David Gaffron's first question, which is who holds the debt? And the answer is complex and varied. Um, the state issues bonds, of course, and those bonds are sold by, uh, on the public markets and uh, bought up by institutional investors, by large firms, by small firms, by small investors. Um, muni bonds are, uh, municipal bonds are, are uh, commonly traded down at the, the low level of investors. So state bonds are also that way. Um, but uh, there's also the idea of the unpaid debt. For instance, dentists are about two years behind on receiving uh, payment under the state insurance plans. What they have had to do to keep the doors open in some areas has been to sell off that debt to debt collectors. So they get nine, 90, 90 cents on the dollar, and the debt collector will eventually collect from the state of Illinois, collect a late payment fee, and that extra 10 cents, and that's how they'll make their money. So the debt is in lots of different places, including limbo, when there are still places uh, out there that haven't seen a payment in two years, and whom the state of Illinois has recently passed legislation um, denying interest payments to. These are the, the small not-for-profits that probably won't see interest on the tab that they've been footing for the last uh, two years. And now, uh, Jim Alstrom. Okay, uh, Cheryl just mentioned uh, something about the income tax. I, I was wondering if there was any chance that a graduated income tax would ever be approved and be the main source of funding. And, and beyond that, more specifically, what could happen to Unit 5 or District 87 if the legislature fails to override Governor Rauner's veto of recent public school funding reform? Who wants that first? Want Cheryl? First Cheryl Gaines. I, I was just going to say, the, the problem with the graduated income tax ever getting passed in the state of Illinois I don't mean any disrespect, but it's really frustrating because it, having sat on the town of Normal Council, the legislatures it, it tends to not want to make some of those tough decisions. They don't want everybody mad at them. 
they want to get reelected. So it falls back on the communities. And so there's many people who were very unhappy with me many times when we had to bite the bullet and we had to raise some taxes because we want our community to be what it needs to be. And we want the people in our community to have the needs met that they have. So it, I don't know if it's ever going to get up. I should also note that the 1970 state of Illinois Constitution makes a graduated income tax really, really, really difficult because there has to be a statewide referendum to amend the Constitution to allow such a thing. And then you have to have a legislature willing to make the political choices on what the brackets are to be. Also a tough, tough lift. Uh, Mark Chantry, you had another thought? So uh, relative to the school, our local school districts and their ability to operate, um, district, in the case of District 87, they're, they're in a position financially with their reserves to essentially uh, conduct the school year with, with little to no problem. Uh, Unit 5 is in a little different situation relative to their cash on hand. Um, if they were to not take any action, i.e. issue cash anticipation warrants or any other type of debt to get through the year, they're... Um, uh, Dr. Daniel, I think, has indicated they're probably able to get to the Christmas break or shortly thereafter. Um, having all said, having said that, I think realistically, the news that is that came out right before I got here this evening was that it, it sounds like the the leaders have agreed to a a bill. I don't think you won't see necessarily Senate Bill One as it was presented passed but something somewhat close to it with uh, with some give on both sides but uh, and I'm of the opinion that'll that'll pass next week because uh, I just don't envision uh, 118 men and women of the General Assembly wanting to walk in Labor Day parades with that still hanging out there but I might be especially naive, right but I after tomatoes I'm, go off yeah so uh, and there are parts of the state uh, legitimately that um, you know, week five of the football season wouldn't happen, and and that's as big a consideration as any in, in some communities. But more 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 seriously, you know, uh, at the end of September, they would have a hard time continuing to offer school. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker, and we're at the Normal Theater talking about the state budget challenges ahead. In just a moment, a question from audience member Karen Smith. Karen, if you would come down to the microphone. Up until the state budget passed, there were a lot of unknown unknowns, to borrow a label. Uh, now there are more known knowns, but there are still known unknowns. Uh, what are those? Vicki Hightower, for instance, <laughs> the effect of uh, the exit from the market of private not-for-profits for some services. You mentioned that that leaves out-of-town for-profits. What does that, what's the, the trailing effect of that? How will that play out in future years? Sure. Um, a big concern of ours is when it went to, like, for instance, with our seniors, uh, with it all being for-profit agencies, if they're not going to be paid by the state, you wonder how long they would remain uh, providing that service in this community because they are all about, if you're a for-profit, you're trying to, to make money, and there is no connection or commitment to McLean County. So uh, it's a big concern with those uh, being the only providers still remaining. I would uh, hesitate. I know they're opening it up, uh, talking about trying to get more providers. I can't imagine anyone after the last two years that would be uh, chomping at the bit to become a provider and hope to get paid. So I think it's all going to be privatized. Um, 
both of the private agencies also, all of their workers are unionized, all the home care aides. So when our home care aides were hired by them, they uh, joined the union and they do have a better, um, I would say they have a better uh, shot at maybe getting some things passed in Springfield than a local not-for-profit. You know, United, YWCA going there trying to fight for something is not going to be the same as, as a large group coming in and, and trying to fight for that same type of thing. But I, I'm just um, really concerned about some of the changes uh, that they're trying to do, and I know a lot of that is from the privatization of that, and especially the community reinvestment program, some of the other things that they're trying to push through. Uh, I think are very scary um, for our seniors, and I think a lot of times... Like um, what? Unpack that, Well, would you? okay, so for community reinvestment, they're looking at over 36,000, that was the last number I saw, uh, Illinois residents that will be moved out of the community care program and go into this community reinvestment. Um, it does save the state money, but when we're talking about people and their services, especially in rural communities, and McLean County has a lot of rural areas here, um, it's strictly focused on where providers are able to, where they're able to receive services. For instance, instead of having a home care aide come into your home and take you to a doctor's appointment or grocery shopping, they're going to have the senior use Uber or Lyft or something. Uh, those are they going to be able to do that? Well, if, it, if there is nobody local to provide that service, then the person would just be out of luck and not have that service. So some of these things I don't think are really being thought of. And as uh, someone in the community, if I wasn't in this field and I just saw in the paper that they were going to do community reinvestment, it's going to save the state tons of money, um, I'd probably be all for it. And I would probably be pushing for that. But when you start really getting into it and seeing what the program is going to do for the individuals, I think we need to really take a, a long look at that. Are the private sector and not-for-profit sector delivery of services of like kind and quality? You will get various answers depending on where you stand in the political spectrum, but assuming the answer is yes, is that the only question to consider? I'm, are, not, are I'm they, not sure are the they, answer is yes. <laughs> are they, well, right, but you're on one side of that question. Yeah. But uh, are the, are the for-profit places likely to be in it for the long term? Laura? I think their bandwidth to um, carry out services when they do multiple states, um, they probably do have bigger bandwidth than we do here as a private nonprofit um, in McLean County serving our McLean County residents. What we know from research for people with disabilities is that the care is not as good, that um, oftentimes people live in much more congregate settings um, where they're living with up to 16 people with disabilities living together. That's how they make it work. That's how they make a profit. Um, and so our research tells us that um, those environments are not the best um, for people with disabilities. And so we know in our environment um, that we do want to support nonprofits. We know that nonprofits are oftentimes the organizations that are accredited through national and international organizations as well. And so we think it is a very viable and a very important service that we keep nonprofits in place for people with disabilities and many other human services as well. Mark Peterson, what are your known unknowns? What further constrictions will the town and other municipalities face as the state abandons certain sectors? Well, I, I do think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a lot of talk in this state about property tax caps. And, and, and let's talk about taxes in general. 
when you look at Illinois compared to other states, uh, independent groups have said Illinois is about in the middle of the pack in terms of overall tax burden. If you look at the array of taxes that we, we all pay, um, if you look focus on property taxes, the property tax uh, the property tax burden is high here, very high compared to most states, um, and and that is that is a concern. However, uh, there have been proposals being uh, discussed pretty actively in Springfield to put on strict property tax limits, uh, with with no other relief. Uh, clearly, uh, particularly school districts, to some degree municipal governments and counties, but particularly school districts rely heavily on, on property taxes uh, to, to property tax revenue to operate schools. And they do in part because the state has not fulfilled its obligation to fund schools at the level they're supposed to. Um, to me, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely irresponsible suggestion that we should limit property taxes. It may be politically expedient, but it's an irresponsible proposal to limit property taxes and further hamstring local governments and school districts without any other relief. It's an irresponsible position. Um, and and uh, unfortunately, there's uh, quite a bit of support because it's probably politically attractive. Um, so um, that's a concern to me. And it's, and frankly, it's not a, the town of Normal, we generate about 10% of our revenue through property taxes. So it won't impact us to nearly the degree it will our local public school districts. And, and I am very concerned if indeed that particular uh, initiative picks up momentum, it could be disastrous to our public school system. Let's move to Karen Smith. Thanks for being so patient to ask your question. Yes, my question is about some services that were lost during the funding crisis, and specifically I'm speaking about the Babyfold Residential Treatment Center. Um, for those of you not familiar with it, it provided residential treatment to children up to age 14 in mental health crisis. Um, I know my own son required placement, and we were fortunate enough to seek it and, and get those services at the children's home in Flanagan. But when we were looking in a very tight time frame, there was the ranch in Flanagan and there was uh, the home in Oblong, Illinois, and that was it. And when I saw that the baby fold had closed, my heart just broke for the parents that are dealing with a very difficult situation to, in the first place and want to stay close to their child when they're getting treatment. Is there any possibility that the baby fold can reinstate those services or is someone else going to come into that breach? Laura, for long. Um, Karen, just in, in, it was a sad loss for our community and also for Central Illinois as a whole because those services are not uh, available. Um, in talking a little bit to the baby fold, and you may have more information as well, Mark, the rates that they were getting for residential services had not changed in 12 years. So you can't expect that same level of intense services for those children who have had traumatic events and, and expect to provide those services at the same rate that they were doing 12 years ago. And we also experience that, where we have the same rates that we had 12 years ago. We have actually more expectations 
than we did 12 years ago. And so many of us, like the baby fold, have to consider. I think they originally downsized a bit and then eventually had to close their services entirely. Um, I think that may be the beginning wave, Karen, of what might be happening in services as well. Um, if we can't adjust those rate issues, much like, Mark, I think you mentioned 2010 rates, we're operating under 2008 rates. We just, you can't expect that. A, 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 other things go up. Um, we have all the expenses that other businesses do as well, and we cannot um, continue to serve those um, programs with those same rates. Laura, what's, what's happened to inflation or cost of living in the last 12 years that those rates have been frozen? Right. So um, it, there's been an increase of 38% um, in, in real dollars that of increased cost of living, and we, we're at the same rate. So we actually get 38 cents less for every dollar um, to provide those services to our families. And so um, it's really hindered us. We have a waiting list, and I, I'm sure much like the baby fold as well. Um, and we've had to say, we can't serve you. You are families that we've known your child since they were two years old, and we've supported them. And they're adults now, and we want um, residential services, and we have had to say we cannot grow anymore. So um, it's not a great great feeling for us um, to have to say that, but we realistically cannot expand services to meet the needs of families in our community. In just a moment, we're going to uh, ask Brian Albertson of Bloomington to the mic so he can get ready for that. How do shortfalls in the social service sector, the constriction of the social service and human service sector affect schools? Mark Jontry. Uh, as I referenced in the opening statement, the, the most immediate or the most prevalent part is, is really the services on, around mental health. Now, um, this county in particular, uh, through uh, the work of, of both uh, Bloomington and Normal, uh, with uh, some sales tax dollars going, we, we were really have a comprehensive plan to try to address that, but it doesn't change the fact, it, at least now in the short term, I, I think we'll make progress as we go forward that our, our agencies that used to provide those interventions and supports, be they, be they in the school setting or outside of the school setting, uh, as I look at Peter and others in, in the room that provided those, um, we lost those uh, for a period of time when the schools were getting their funding at a relatively stable level and the agencies were starting to lose them, the schools would pick up that difference to, to maintain those, but then they just became the breaking point where you couldn't do that either. So what does that do to the educational environment? So what has happened, great question, Charlie. Uh, what has happened is, honestly, a lot of our teachers are less of a teacher and more of a social worker. Now, we have individuals in our buildings that are trained as social workers. That's what they went to school to do. Uh, but the vast majority of our, our staff are teachers, but they... They weren't trained to be full-time social workers. Do they like it? Uh, they're frustrated because they're, they're not doing as much teaching. Do they stay they, with it or do they leave? If the younger they are, the more likely they are to leave the profession. And so this has exacerbated our teacher shortage issue. And it's going to continue to exacerbate our teacher shortage issue because we have fewer and fewer individuals that are going into the profession uh, because they see some of the things that are doing. I, I mean, I, I can tell you any number of stories of a single parent or two parent family that are educators, either one or both of them, and they're steering their kids away from the profession if the kids express even a modicum of interest in going into the field. Because of not only that, uh, because of those challenges, 
uh, the pension issue, the benefit issue, and just uh, a number of other factors. And so um, we, we try, you know, um, there are strategies to try to mitigate that on the front end. Uh, I know, you, Charlie, you recently did an interview with the, uh, the research staff at the College of Ed at ISU that kind of highlighted the issues around the shortage. And ISU does have a, a, a pretty robust system where they do year-long inter internships to make sure our candidates are, are well-versed in what they're going to be dealing with. And it's proven to be successful in retaining but we're getting fewer and fewer people into the profession because of the outside influences that they're having to deal with. They're having to deal with more and more of the family dynamic in the classroom and or the lack of supports. And so that's our most challenging issue when it comes to trying to deliver instruction to kids these days. Uh, I should cite that interview. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning it. You can hear it at WGLT.org if you wish. Um, the estimate is that there is a shortage in the state of Illinois of about uh, uh, 60,000 teachers, 2,000 of them in, in uh, Cook and the Collar counties uh, alone. Um, excuse me, 60,000 nationwide, and there are 2,000 vacancies in the state of Illinois as of the start of school. Uh, and I can just add to that, Charlie, our organization will be conducting a survey on this very topic uh, that will be released to our districts uh, next week. And so we will have very current data uh, relative to the start of the current school year um, by the end of September. So uh, I'm afraid of what it will look like. There are a lot of interconnections between human service agencies and governmental bodies. We just went through one of them. As some have ended programs, what happens to the others? Mark Peterson? How do first responders cope with the lack of the erosion of the programs that, that you have been funneling people to? Well, it's a, it's a significant problem, and, and we have seen that in recent years, and my sense is our particular police department, and to some degree our fire departments, are going to see more of that in the coming months. Uh, there are human service agencies in this community that are on the brink. Um, they, they've already cut back. They've cut back to the point that they... I'm talking about survival. They are going to close their doors. These are agencies that have been here many, many, many years and provide extremely valuable services. They are within weeks of closing their doors. And that, that certainly will have a profound impact on our uh, first responders. Uh, it is far more uh, expensive and far less effective to deal with some of these issues through the criminal justice system than it is through direct services that will be lost. But that, unfortunately, is what's going to happen if things don't change. And again, that puts additional pressure on local governments and pressure uh, on, on police departments where, again, they're doing things that really they're not intended to do, but they have to do, and they have to address issues of, of mental health and other behavioral issues through the criminal justice system, which is really not, a, not an effective way to do so. Um, so we know it has happened in the past. We know more is likely to happen in the future if things go unchanged. And Vicki and Laura, how are you having, how are your agencies having to cope with the exit of other agencies from the field? Um, Laura, go, Laura goes first there. You go first. You, go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll All right, Vicki. All right, I'll just briefly say that uh, we have seen an influx uh, for instance, even on our home care, when other agencies had to shut their doors, then that's how we almost doubled in our numbers and had to start providing, you know, changing, um, adding more supervisors, doing some different things that 
uh, we went from serving about, I, I know I came back to the YWCA almost four years ago when we only had maybe about uh, 20, 25 staff, and we ended up having 75 uh, right before we started uh, closing our doors on that program. And as far as clients, we were well under 100, and we were at 250 uh, at one point, and that was just from agencies having to shut their doors. I know our child care, uh, when several agencies had to, to close, that we took on more of the uh, low-income uh, children coming through our doors. And I, I know with our uh, Stepping Stone Sexual Assault Program, they're taking on more and more roles that other agencies were doing before, but now they're coming because we provide uh, free counseling services in that, and so we're getting a, a larger influx of individuals coming through our doors. And Laura. And I, I think what we're seeing is um, the behavioral or mental health services are really compromising our families. And so um, even for our families to get to services, to be available for services, it's really um, very much a challenge. And so I think as those services continue to dwindle um, and maybe go to select groups of people, people with private insurance versus people on Medicaid, we will con continue to see challenges for those families. and we'll be sharing those problems with the schools then as well because that's where those those children are not going to stop having issues once they get to school in fact they'd be much better off to address them early which I know Mark said so and Brian Albertson from the audience thanks so much for your patience what's your question so politicians have often used the tactic of polarizing the state between Chicago versus the downstate area. Um, how has this affected the state budget impasse and stakeholders working together? Mark Peterson or Mark Jontry? Well, that seems like in your wheelhouse. I'll jump in. I think it, it certainly has affected the, the ability of uh, our the members of our General Assembly to come together. I think there is a divide, and that's unfortunate. Um, as a downstater, it's easy, easy for me and us to take shots at Chicago. Um, and sometimes there's good reason to take shots at Chicago, but let's not forget the city of Chicago is a huge part of our, our economy in Illinois. Uh, I remember I heard one time a, a downstate legislator suggesting that we should like de-annex Chicago, and I'm like, boy, that's not a very smart person because the, the Chicago generates so much economic activity, so much wealth, so much tax revenue for the state of Illinois. It's critically important to our future. And so Chicago's health should be the concern to everyone. Chicago public schools health should be a concern to everyone. Now, by the same token, we have issues too, and we certainly don't want all of our resources funneled up to the city. But I do think there is a polarization in Springfield, and I do think there's sort of an us versus them, a Chicago versus downstate uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, conflict. And we need to get past that. And, and we need people in Springfield that are statesmen. We need people that are willing to make hard decisions, that are willing to compromise, that awful word compromise, uh, give and take. And again, I'm not pointing fingers at any one political party or any office everyone's to blame. We are all to blame. Uh, but we are running out of time. We are running out of time. We are quickly reaching a point where the damage that this fiscal crisis is causing will be irreversible. And so something has to happen. I think forums like this hopefully will send a message 
but something's got to change, and it's got to change quickly. So this is a plug to call or write your lawmaker if you like what you're hearing tonight, and if you don't like what you're hearing tonight. Call them either way. Mark Chantry. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, Mark uh, summarized it, I thought, very eloquently. I just, I, I would put forth to you that we've done generational, I don't know if to what level we've done permanent damage, but we've certainly done generational damage. Uh, I referenced earlier, we've got kids that are leaving this state when they graduate high school. They're going, you know, we're a great exporter of kids to Missouri, Iowa, Kentucky for higher ed. And a lot of that is a product of not adequately funding our higher ed institutions in the state of Illinois. Because when those kids go away, some of them will come back, but more and more of them are not coming back. And that harms us on the economic level locally because we've got very talented individuals who are leaving that could, that could fill, you know, the jobs that we have here that we look to fill that are um, high-end, very well-paying jobs. And, you know, our businesses continue to look for those type of employees. And we're making it a lot harder, not only uh, here in Bloomington Normal, uh, but across the state by not adequately funding not only the services that we need, but higher ed and making those destination institutions. You know, our, our institution down the street has done a great job. They're, they're really an outlier uh, in, in, that, in that big picture. Um, but that that's still an issue because we've got fewer kids graduating from high schools in the state of Illinois. That's another part of this. So we have fewer kids to pick from uh, in the short term. Hopefully that'll trend back up. But right now we have fewer kids graduating high school, not just because they're not graduating. We have fewer kids, period, So across the state. So um, that's, that's an immediate concern is the generational damage that we're doing to this state. And, and there, there probably will be some permanent damage, but it's certainly generational. And Cheryl Gaines. Well, if we're talking between Chicago and downstate, there, we do see that in social services because when some social service in one community is closing its doors and or lessening the amount of people they can see, guess what? Those people migrate to another area of the state. And so it keeps going back and forth. And what we see here in McLean County is we're seeing a lot of folks who are homeless. And they land here because they hear this is a good place in McLean County. It's supposed to be rich. And so the problem is they are not getting mental health treatment. They get here. Our mental health center doesn't have the capacity for it. My agency actually does provide some mental health counseling for the homeless um, through a continuum of care grant. However, it's not in depth enough. And so these folks just keep bouncing around and bouncing around and that impacts not only social services, it impacts the police departments. It impacts local businesses who are having problems because they have homeless people hanging out and asking people for money. It, it just continues on and on and on. And so it all intertwines, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Susan Reel, uh, your moment is at hand. This is a special edition of Sound Ideas on 89.1 GLT and WGLT.org. State budget challenges ahead. Sponsored by AARP Illinois with the support of NPR Illinois. I'm Charlie Schlenker, GLT News Director, and you're listening to WGLT Normal. Susan, go ahead and ask your question. 
Good evening, everyone. Um, I am the Executive Director of the East Central Illinois Area Agency on Aging, and we're a planning and funding body for aging community programs on aging. And I had uh, put in my, my question that uh, during the past fiscal year, approximately 2,200 senior citizens were served by community programs in McLean County. So 2,200 older adults were served through Meals on Wheels, home-delivered meal programs, through senior information services here in Bloomington, normal um, caregiver program, and um, congregate nutrition. So with that, um, our, our operating budget for 16 counties, McLean being one, or our funding through the state it, it comes to about 36%. So that state funding mingled with federal funding has gone um, very far to serve many, many seniors. So my question to the group is, because I love the, the combination of, of individuals here, uh, what solutions can you offer to protect this funding for our frail elderly? Who wants it first? <laughs> Not a lot of takers. I'll pick Vicki. <laughs> solutions. Solutions to keep the funding. Um, well, first of all, I, I've worked closely with your agency, so um, many of the things that, that have been provided to seniors throughout McLean County could not have been possible without the East Central Area Agency on Aging. I would say, uh, especially even I know the the 211, uh, a place that's easy for seniors to try to find those resources and that, which is so important now because, like I was saying before, so many people are so confused on where to go and who now is providing services in that. So I just think that um, as a community, I think we're going to have to be more and more aware of what type of policies and that that our legislators trying to pass uh, concerning seniors. I know that uh, there was a lot of concern uh, losing funding and some other things uh, in the paper. It talked about a Don score. And I talked to several people and they're like, well, that sounds like a good plan. And you know, we're gonna, that's gonna be great, but not even understanding what that means. So I think just uh, to secure our funding here, it's gonna have to be more and more people stepping up, talking about the needs of seniors. Um, sometimes that is the forgotten. Uh, population and just showing the numbers that we have, especially even in our community, um, and the different types of needs because it does go across the board here um, for everyone uh, within this community. So I, I do think that it's more getting more and more informative sessions going, explaining what some of these things are that the legislators are talking about changing or dropping. I think that would be very beneficial. Laura Furlong. How are you, Susan? Good question. Um, I really think that we have to educate people to be advocates. You have to vote. You, your families have to vote. Um, we have to be educating our, my aging parents who relocated here from Wisconsin to be close to us. They need to be voting. I'm like, Dad, write a letter to the editor. You have got to be the voice. You are the voice. And so I think sometimes in various groups, we, we lose that power. But anything we can do to get people to vote, to help educate them on that topic, they are the voice. Um, and I think sometimes that can get lost for some specific groups. And Mark Peterson. Weigh in on this. Um, first of all, you know, w we need to take care of our elderly. We just—it's shameful that when we're not. And and I, I say that. And I also say the thing about young children. Um, that's a that's a fundamental responsibility of a community, in my opinion. Um, what do we do? 
Well, I hate to say it, and I certainly don't want to let the state off the hook, but my confidence in the ability of state government to solve problems like this is very low. Um, I have much greater confidence in our community to solve problems, and that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, we've attempted to do some of that through mental health, uh, some of the mental health programs and issues that we face. Uh, there was a realization that uh, programs that were in the past available through the state and some federal agencies were gone and were likely never to return. We felt as a community, I think community leaders felt, we cannot simply stand by and just let this system collapse knowing the, the magnitude of the problem that creates. So the two communities, I think, took a bold action to raise the sales tax, and a significant part of that was set aside for community mental health programs. Not enough. You know, still not enough, but it was helpful. It may be necessary that we have to take local responsibility for these, not just your population and your clients, but others, and try to figure out a way to do it locally. And I... I I don't want to let the state think we're letting them off the hook, unfortunately, but how long can we wait around and hope that there's a solution? Um, and it may, across the board, we may have to bite the bullet as a community and figure out how we're going to take care of our, our people on our own with our own resources. Now, when all of this is happening at the state level, unfortunately, what appears to be local philanthropy is also decreasing. And that's scary. Um, uh, you know, United Way certainly, I mean, it's, it's tragic what's happened there. And, and I don't fully understand it, <laughs> frankly. But um, that's another cause for concern because I think we are going to have to locally fill the gap. And that means we're all going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to do more. And I, I'm concerned about whether the community's prepared to do that. Well, um what other areas are ripe for a local solution then? We've talked about the model of behavioral health and mental health, which the county government has taken ownership of because of its deep and abiding interest in limiting jail populations. But what would a town of normal want to take on? What would a city of Bloomington want to take on? What would a normal or Bloomington township want to take on? And how do you start the conversation about each other group pitching in to pay for it? Sounds like a Cheryl Gaines question to me. Okay. <laughs> Punt. Well, when it came to the behavioral health things, we just started the conversation. There were many uh, retreats that the town council had, that, and this started a number of years back. And I think they all got sick of listening to me say, we've got to step up here in the community. The state is not going to do it. And we are going to have real problems that are going to affect not only the citizens that are miserable, that are depressed, they're having children that are living in terrible conditions, um, but it's also affecting the police. There are all of these, the whole, the whole entity happens. And so that's when we we worked our way through to say, you know what, we, we do have to step up. And so then we partnered with um, Bloomington to say, and to the county, to say, hey, we're, we're one community here. So we all need to work together. And it, it was a great job. And I think um, a lot of places could take a lesson from how we did this. 
um, how this came about. Uh, I know lots of people weren't happy about the tax increase, but you know you're going to pay me now or pay me later. Mark Jontry. I think it, you know, to piggyback on the comments that have been made, it really is about seeking out that dialogue with similar interested partners. Um, the mental health issue at the school level has caused us to uh, come together uh, providers and school personnel uh, with a, a group called Behavioral Health in Schools, and we meet quarterly, talk about our issues, and it, it, it's led to a couple of innovative uh, programs uh, being implemented, uh, pilot programs uh, in two of our rural districts to overcome the uh, access issue to embed counseling in those schools one day a week, and we're going to look to expand that. Uh, this year to our two highest need 61701 zip code uh, junior highs here in Bloomington and Normal. And that's, that's really a product of a, the collective group of providers and school personnel coming together, having that dialogue, uh, making sure we weren't duplicating services, because that was one of the challenges we were having, and, and being smarter and more intentional with the resources we have, limited or otherwise, to affect the greatest amount of service. And so uh, we're moving forward with that, but I think that's just one example, and I think you're gonna continue to see more and more examples of that dialogue. The Town of Normal and Clean County Unit District Number 5 have started down that road and having that dialogue about keeping that communication open about what their respective needs are with their with their advisory yeah. group. And do, so, we, do we have the time for this, though? I mean, it took on the order of a decade to get the mental health initiative and the jail expansion going. It took um, five or six years to get the jail diversion program going before that. It took several years, maybe 25 years ago, uh, when that happened, to address uh, the, the need for better coordination and delivery of services on domestic, the domestic violence front in this in this community, this isn't happening fast. Is the is there time? You have to make time. I mean, you just have to make the time, and you have to make it a priority. So, what, you know, it's you just have to. I, I would agree. Uh, I would agree. Locally, we can move lightning fast if we want to. We really can. We are not encumbered by a lot of the shackles of state government and the federal government. We have the ability in, in our own community to move very rapidly if we truly want to. Um, and so I think it, we can move quickly. I don't, I don't have all the solutions, and government isn't the answer to everything. I just want to make that clear. But I think we, we are going to have to take local responsibility. And, again, Cheryl Gaines said she was... She talked about, you know, some of the challenges facing mental health to her colleagues for years. It was really her that started the, this whole thing, and eventually they heard her, and they said, you're right, we, we can't stand by and let this system collapse, or it was already collapsing. And so I think we can move quickly. I really, I think it's possible, but it takes the will, and, and I see the, the people on the panel and in the audience that... Uh, run and work in these human service agencies, and, and, and you folks are amazing. I hear these stories about how you're serving more people with substantially less money, and you're still doing it with a smile on your face. I don't get it. Uh, but it shows your commitment to what you're doing, and that's where, that's the good news here. That, that's the good news. The people in this audience on this panel so believe what they're doing, they probably do it for free. No, I'm not suggesting you do it for, but they are doing the job because they are absolutely committed to it. Probably 
not necessarily like the for-profit agencies. They probably have a different mindset. But most of these people, I see people in a room I've known for years and years, and they've been doing this forever, and they're still doing it with fewer resources and with 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 uh, sort of a bleak future. But they're they're still here and they're still doing the job. And and thank goodness for all of you because if it wasn't for your tenacity and your resolve, we we'd be in even deeper trouble. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. A special edition of Sound Ideas tonight on 89.1 GLT and WGLT.org. Brought to you in part by uh, AARP Illinois and by NPR Illinois. Um, you're painting a rather nice picture of local cooperation, but a climate of scarcity can do horrible things to cooperation, too. If people get desperate enough, there is a sense of competition that often sets in. And that cooperation can go out the window. Have you seen that? Is there a danger of that? How do you address that? Mark. Well, I'll go back to our, our group, our behavioral health and schools group, and that was a concern as we came together. But our intention, we, we put it out on the table at the very first meeting. We need to be more strategic, more intentional with the limited amount of resources that we have. And uh, it wasn't even so much really a competition as to uh, who's going to access dollars. You know, the dollars were already uh, available to the to the entities, they, there really wasn't quote unquote necessarily any more dollars to come, but it was more a matter of let's be intentional and, and get the biggest bang for the buck and, and everybody, everybody bought into that. And so I guess I go back to the my belief that in this community, in this county, uh, we operate in that manner in terms of approaching it for the collective whole and that everybody will get on board uh, with that approach. So that that's been my experience uh, in, in some areas, and so that's that's the approach I'm going to continue to take uh, when it comes to trying to maximize whatever resources we have. Laura Furlong and Vicki Hightower, are you confident of the continuing um, priority of interagency cooperation and communication? Um, well, we've seen some really nice work that has started with housing as well, and because we know that housing is a basic building block for all the other services that people may need or to keep people healthy and have good well-being in their community. And so um, I think what we've found, or what my observation has been, is that if there's a good leadership team, a steering committee, a group, whoever that might be, um, that we can, I think, I agree with Mark, move really quickly. I think when you go to those meetings, there's not a person in the room that doesn't know what the issues are. Um, I think everyone's in agreement. And so we come together doing that and really having that spearhead and that leadership um, to move forward, I, I think we can move very quickly. And, and although I hate to say the budget maybe gave us some good things in the last um, 10 years of, of consistent rates for human services, we can't do things the same. We can't do things the way we used to do. We have to work collectively. We can't say, well, you know, I don't want the Y to get a dollar that Cheryl's going to get. We can't do that anymore. We have to look at the collective well-being. And so, you know, maybe that's the silver lining of all of this. I think we are working very closely together and very much have a pulse on what's happening for families in our community who are impacted by various service changes. Vicki, your turn at the plate. Yeah, I, I think in this community, especially in McLean County, what I've noticed is there are 
everybody wants to be partners. I don't see that competitiveness here. Um, I serve on several different advisory councils, whether it be on transportation or home care services or any of that. And what everybody's trying to do is make sure who has the resources, who has the number of staff, who has what it's going to take to make sure that everybody gets the services. And so I, I don't, I had a fear that everybody would be going for the same dollars and that we would start getting a little ugly <laughs> just to keep our doors open. But what I've seen is it's almost like, well, we've got this much money to do this service. Can you take over this if we, you know, so it's, it's that cooperation. And I know um, I was thrilled to be a part of, we had a McLean County uh, a Medivan coalition and we drive, uh, Dante Latz and our, our present CEO decided, let's try to put a private-public uh, partnership together. And I've never seen so, you know, all the leaders around the table, and we were sitting there, and then we had uh, the both hospitals represented, and the uh, city of Bloomington, the town of Normal. Uh, we had McLean County uh, uh, people from their council and stuff on there. And it was just all of the different partners that had to deal with people getting transportation to and from doctor's appointments. And we all met. And we were saying we were going to have to close our doors quickly. So we did a first we all met together and raised enough money to keep us going for the next eight months. Uh, just that group collectively trying to figure out, well, we could shift money here. We can do this. And then we, after that, took that pressure off that people could still be served. We were able then to just have the conversation on who's best to provide this service. We're not going to be able to raise this kind of money every year to keep it going. And we made that transition working closely with Connect Transit and the cities, both cities saying, let's see if we can't transfer this over. So I, I think it can work here. And when you're saying quickly, this all happened just in a few months, putting this group together to try to figure out how do we get people to the doctor? I mean, it was something as simple as that. Mark Peterson, you have said in previous interviews with GLT that municipalities are not well suited to innovation, that um, they don't think of new ideas. And it, the, out, the reason is a natural one, is that elected officials like to be careful with taxpayer dollars. So they don't want to take a flyer on an idea that might not work out. Is what we're talking about here going to require innovation or is it simply going to require a good traffic cop and a, a memorandum of understanding and an agreement to do things a certain way with somebody providing the funding and the center, the power center for it? I think I said most municipalities are averse to innovation, not normal. Um, it, but I do... Th That's yeah, your I, story and you're sticking I, to I, it. I, I just wanted to correct the record. Ms. Cheryl Gaines is still, she thinks she's my boss still, so better. Um, I, I, I think it takes innovation. It takes, tra it takes all those things. It does take a good traffic cop. It takes somebody to coordinate. But I think it does take innovation. And I think we've demonstrated in this community at all levels we can be innovative. Uh, you're right. Local government at all levels tends to be risk averse. And in, given that, they move slowly and they don't like to, you know, they don't like to put themselves in a position where they're uh, publicly chastised. But um, I, I don't see that so much here in Bloomington Normal, and, and I think this is, some of the issues we're talking about today is, is I think the community can rally around and provide the necessary political cover, if necessary, for elected leaders to, to, to take some risk and to do some things that are out of the box. So we did it with mental health, and I think we can do it with other things. Like what? Well, I think some of the, some of the issues that I've heard tonight, some of the, the funding issues and the 
the service delivery issues that we're hearing tonight, I think we need to come together as a community. I think local governments need to be involved. I think other all uh, services, I think the business community needs to be at the table. And, 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 and collectively, let's try to find a way to make it work, kind of back to Mark Jontry's concern, being strategic, being innovative, being creative, doing things a little bit maybe differently than we have in the past, but figuring out a way to stretch those dollars, those limited dollars, and make things work. And I think incumbent of all that is cooperation and collaboration among the parties. I think it can be done, um, and I think it can be done here, and probably reasonably quickly. Norma Oberholzer of Normal, you're up in just a moment, so please uh, approach the, uh, the microphone. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker, and uh, we're coming to you with the support of uh, AARP Illinois and NPR Illinois here on 89.1 FM. Um, the, the current structure of social services and human services grew over time. It started out maybe in the late 1800s, early 1900s with when it became clear that um, churches and other local community organizations weren't strong enough to meet the need at that time. And then over time it, it grew to be specialists and the fields involved in these various service deliveries became professionalized. But the institutions that we're talking about may not still exist anymore. The, the churches are weaker. The human service agencies are, are weaker now af after this last decade, not just the last two years. So what will this new system look like in terms of who manages and organizes? It just doesn't all have to be municipalities or a governmental body. Are there private entities out there in a local setting that can do that. Cheryl Gaines. Well, I think the important thing to remember is that nonprofits are businesses. They just aren't there to, for the bottom line. They're there to provide services, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to be entrepreneurial. We have to be able to think outside the box. And unfortunately, over many years, um, social services didn't do that. It was there, I was just there to serve the these, these particular um, clients and that's what my job is to do well it it can't be that way anymore because any business if you just decide this is how I've done business forever I'm not going to be there and so you in order for all of this to work and in our community to work we we have to find those folks who have that mindset who have some of those same skills there's a skill set to to all of that as well. And what is that skill set? Well, I think that skill set is to understand and have the empathy for the sort of issues that go on in, this, in behavioral health, social services, all of those things. But yet at the same time... All that and a CPA too. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, to be able to also think about um, collaboration as, as well as, you know, one social service agency nowadays can't do it all for everybody. And so the person has to, to ha ha have the mindset uh, uh, for the client, but they have to be, have the skill set to be um, collaborative and cooperative, and they also have to have the skill set of looking ahead and, and forecasting what, what some of that business principle has got to be in order to help survive. Mark Chantry, you had a thought. Uh, just, you know, 
from the public education perspective, we, we are looking to be more and more innovative. And, and so that probably requires us to look at how we're gonna engage our, our, our non-public partners uh, in terms of delivery of services. Um, you know, whether that's, uh, you, you're gonna see more and more utilization of distance uh, delivery, uh, digital delivery, uh, I think, over the, the coming years. Whether it's, beef, whether it's for um, behavioral health services, it's, we certainly utilize it already for instructional services. And so I think we will continue to have to be open to um, how other uh, models are potentially delivered to us. And to that end, the State Board of Education is, is promoting districts of innovation. And, and with that comes a loosening of regulations and, and requirements, which you know, by and large, every school superintendent and board of education welcomes with open arms. But uh, you also have to be intentional about it and do it right uh, to do it well. So. Norma Oberholtz, Shirley, ask your question, please. Yes, first of all, I want to say thank you to every one of you that is sitting up there and the dedication that you have for what you've chosen to be your passion. And I compliment you and anyone else that's in your dilemma right now. I have a two-part question. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I think Bloomington Normal is one of the greatest places to be in Illinois, especially right now. Uh, we, we do take care of a lot of the problems ourselves, which I, I think is important to do. We can't let someone else take care of our problems. We have to take care of our own. But with that in mind, I have a two-part question. Uh, the first part is, to me, always interesting because all of you have the passion for what you do, whether it's the city or the school or a non-profit a non, uh, organization. But I want to know, and I'm going to do this just for Mark Peterson, Mark Jantry, and Laura Furlong. The first part of my two-part question is, in your opinion, what are the top three areas of need in Illinois? In other words, if you were making the decisions for the budget, what would be the top three or five, whatever, whatever you feel? So I'm going to ask that Mark Peterson, Mark Jantry, and Laura Furlong, first of all. And let's take it in that order. <laughs> um, but that's a great question. Uh, you really put us on the spot, Norma. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, well, first of all, I think fundamentally in Illinois, we have to grow our economy. In there, and I think that, in fact, I would say that about Bloomington Normal as well. Uh, a healthy, vibrant, growing economy helps to solve some of the problems we've talked about tonight. It, it helps to ensure that people have jobs and good jobs. It helps them have access to housing, health care, and other things. Um, economies that are stagnant or declining tend to cause these agency uh, leaders headaches because it means their clientele grows. So number one, we need to do what we can do to, to, to grow the economy. Uh, and there are a variety of things. Uh, Illinois is woefully inadequate in providing uh, business incentive programs. We have little or nothing. Uh, we are getting schooled by Iowa and Indiana and other surrounding states. They are far, far ahead of us. There's no reason for that. We need to become aggressive. We need to dedicate resources to business development. That's probably, that would be number one on my, on my list. Um, I think the other thing that would be very high on my list is we need to fund education. We need to fund education at all levels. I think it is fundamental to any state, certainly ours, to make sure that we have 
the best schools, the best K through 12 schools, and the best higher education system that we can possibly have. I think that's an investment in our future, our long-term future. Um, that's two. I'm going to stop at two, okay? All right. Thanks. All right. Number three, four. Let's go with Laura. All right. I agree um, that I think we do um, have to help our citizens have well-being and reach their full potential, and our businesses to be able to do that too. So I certainly agree with Mark said. I think we really need to have a focus on education um, from early years all the way through post-secondary education, and I think that's a key piece. Um, and again, thinking about our, our, our state as a whole, I think we need to help our state come to to um, be dedicated to addressing issues um, with, our, with our community as a whole, um, whether that be addressing pension issues, so we have resources to do that, whether that, again, is growing businesses, but really having a plan and a thoughtful way of carrying out those services. And Mark. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I would not deviate from any of those three. I would tell you when it comes to funding education, you know, one of the criticisms of education in the past, specifically probably K-12, but probably K through 16, K through 20, is, is measuring what is your investment generating? What are you getting back? And so at the K-12 level, as a result of federal legislation, we are starting the process of identifying how are you going to measure your outcomes relative to the amount of investment you're putting into public education. Uh, this afternoon I was in Springfield at the first meeting of a, a group that is tasked with coming up with those outcomes essentially going forward. So education, K through uh, higher ed has to be funded, I would agree. To Mark's point about uh, growing our business and economy, absolutely, because that's the greatest need. What I, would, what I would tie to that is we have to look at our infrastructure in the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. We are what the, the highest generator of, of corn uh, in the state in the country if not the world uh, we have infrastructure issues around our waterways and getting those out of Illinois into shipping ports but our bridges our roadways our rail we have to in my opinion invest more that may be more if more so a federal issue than a state issue but I think we certainly have to focus on that and then certainly our support of social services going forward and Norma, you had a part two about I did. this vision for <laughs> I Roll. did. Um, you've said all the things that are wrong in Illinois, and there's many, many of them, and, and uh, I think you should all go down to Springfield and take over. But uh, my second question is, what is Illinois doing right? <laughs> and let's, uh, <laughs> let's just go down the road. Vicki Hightower, why don't you start with that one? Well, <laughs> don't know that I've thought about that recently. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I don't know that I have been. I mean, I, I've always lived in Illinois. I love Illinois, and I love, um, uh, you know, you can go from the north to the south and, and see every type of scenery, every type of, uh, it's all welcoming. I've never been anywhere that was not welcoming in, in this state. Um, I graduated from school here, so I think that uh, our education system for myself was, was phenomenal. I really enjoyed that time. I, I really don't know because I am just very negative right now. So I know. I'm not sure what <laughs> I just is. asked. It's yeah, more sorry. of a facetious yeah. question. Really. Mark, you're an optimist by nature. I, thank you for the question because it's a good one. We have a lot to offer here in Illinois. We have, we have a, a fantastic workforce, trained workforce that is second to none. We have 
uh, fabulous transportation infrastructure. Uh, needing some work, but it's still very good when you look at rail, you look at uh, you look at, 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 at uh, rivers and, and, and you look at uh, highways, interstate highways, and so forth. We, it's hard to find a state with th that sort of transportation infrastructure. The other thing that sometimes gets overlooked is you look at our power grid and you look at our broadband network. It's very, very good. Texas gets a lot of credit. Eh. They're, they pale in comparison to Illinois. Those are three things that we need as a state to tout because they are, from an economic development perspective, they're very, very important and they're tremendous assets. Laura Furlong, what is good about Illinois right now? As, as I think about our citizens um, and all of you here today um, and my colleagues and friends here at the table, um, I think we have people who are very committed to their community and to the state. And, and it's hard to say that in Illinois when we're all very frustrated, but everywhere we go, people wanna work through the issues, people want to help address the issues, and I think we have a lot of tenacity as citizens in Illinois. Mark? Uh, despite uh, our education funding model currently mirroring probably what I think Laura referred to as, as um, what our funding for social services in the bottom five in the country, we still do a really good job of educating our our populace, and so uh, hopefully we'll be moving that needle uh, after today. Uh, but uh, our, our education system, despite the challenges, is still produces a lot of highly educated individuals who go on to do a lot of great things. And Cheryl Gaines, you get the last word. Um, I think that I, I agree with the people of Illinois. We're, we're raised in the Midwest. We care about people. We're, we're we care about others and we see this especially in our community um, but the we do tourism well in Illinois we, you know people gripe about Chicago but again we have great tourism there but we also have Abe Lincoln we also have Route 66 so we have a lot of things that happen here that bring a lot of guests and people coming through and thanks to NPR Illinois AARP of Illinois and Bob Gallo for this series Thanks to GLT staffers, including Program Director Mike McCurdy, Broadcast Technologist Travis Metters, Digital Director Ryan Denham, Events Coordinator Linda Healy, All Things Considered host Laura Kennedy, writing the board back at the station, and everyone else who's had a piece of this production. Thanks as well to our distinguished panelists, Laura Furlong of Mark First, Mark Peterson of the Town of Normal, Cheryl Gaines of the Institute for Collaborative Solutions, Regional Superintendent of Schools Mark Chantry, and Vicki Hightower of the YWCA of McLean County. Thank Thanks as well to the Garlic Press, the Town of Normal, and Country Financial Representative Justin M. Boyd. I'm Charlie Schlenker. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT Normal, a service of Illinois State University.